Uh, good morning, Crossroads. It's good to see you. I like summer edition. I don't know what Jeremy's problem was, but uh, we have good ministry to do this summer together. Uh, excited about it. Friday nights we will meet in the month of July. We have three Sundays left before Sundays in July and eager to uh, be with you and eager to uh, minister uh, to you. This is a great time uh, for you to join the church if you haven't joined the church this summer, if you're around. Uh, if, you've, if you've put off baptism, it's a great time to start to take the membership class, to look into baptism. This is a good time to get plugged in to Crossroads, a good time to get plugged into Grace. And because uh, so many of our friends who go to school here but don't actually live here uh, have left us uh, for the summer months, I thought it would be appropriate uh, before we get into the next section of Mark to take a little break uh, and uh, what we're going to do is, is handle three psalms the next three weeks. Uh, I love the psalms, and I think all believers have uh, a special place in their heart for uh, the psalms. It's a place where you, you go to in your Bible when you don't know where else to go, uh, a place that helps you pray when you don't know what to pray. And so the next three weeks, we'll look at three psalms, uh, very kind of different kinds of songs. Uh, the first one is a song that's almost entirely vertical, that looks up in praise at God. Uh, we'll look at Psalm 29 this morning. Uh, next week, we'll look at a psalm that's more downward and inward, a more introspective psalm, a psalm that urges our hearts towards repentance. And then on our, our third week, the last Sunday in June, let's look at a psalm that gets our attention outside of our walls and into God's plan for his glory to cover uh, the world. And there are several psalms that, that are like that, but we'll look at, at one in particular. But for this morning, let's look at, at Psalm 29, uh, a powerful song uh, to say the least. It is, I'm going to give you a title for it, Psalm 29, let's call it His Glory is in the Storm. His Glory is in the Storm. And this is a song that is entirely consumed with the name and the glory of God. I think, and I'm asking God to use this song to help you understand better how glorious God is and why he commands us to worship him and, and how our heart should be tuned towards the worship of God because of his glorious name. So... Let's begin by just reading Psalm 29. It's a, it's a little psalm, only 11 verses long. Psalm 29, it begins a David song or a psalm of David. Give to Yahweh, I'll say Yahweh there, whether your Bible says Lord or not, mostly because I want you to hear that, that resonance and that repetition of God's covenant name. So verse one, give to Yahweh, O sons of the mighty, Give to Yahweh glory and strength. Give to Yahweh the glory due to his name. Bow in worship to Yahweh in the majesty of holiness. Yahweh's voice over the waters. The God of glory thunders. Yahweh is over many waters. Yahweh's voice in power. Yahweh's voice in majesty. Yahweh's voice breaks the cedars. Yahweh has broken the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon leap like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of Yahweh is hewing flames of fire. The voice of Yahweh makes the wilderness shake. Yahweh makes the wilderness of Kadesh shake. Yahweh's voice makes the deer give birth and has stripped the forests bare and in his temple everything is saying glory it was yahweh who sat enthroned at the flood yahweh is enthroned as king forever yahweh gives strength to his people yahweh blesses his people with peace this is the very word of the living god what a song. And like any song, like any piece of composed poetry, it speaks in language that reaches beyond the ordinary conventions of, of prose. 
This is poetry. This is symbolic language, powerful language, the depiction of something that could be described in an ordinary course of of human language. You could summarize this song by saying uh, that God is uh, big and that when his power is on display, it really does and has the ability to uh, mess the whole world up. Uh, But that wouldn't be very poetic, would it? He puts it differently. He puts it beautifully. And in one of, in my opinion, David's most incredible compositions, both in its structure, its poetic structure, but in its powerful repetition, it insists on all of the the singers of this song, those who would take this song as their own song to understand what worship is all about and to understand uh, words that may have slipped in your understanding of kind of Christianese, words like glory, words like worship, concepts like the voice of God. These are things that are so important if we're going to understand what it means to give God glory, to give God worship, to give God praise, to adore God. And, and I think this is a, a song that can teach us that all of life must be seen through that lens and seeing the the entirety of our existence to be to find its its significance in a, a right view of who God is and how how big God is how glorious God is because when i when i talk about god to you i wonder or if you just think about god i wonder what what thoughts fill your mind because if God is a, a limitless being, a being of, of utter and eternal perfection, but if the people who worship him can think of about two things about him, there's a significant gap there that needs to be filled. And I think David seeks to fill that gap in our minds when we think about God, the, the one who is a, a being who dwells in inapproachable light, who is the 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 sum of all his perfections, he he gives us some content to fill our minds so that our praise is not empty. And we live in a a day of of dangerous kind of praise that is highly and entirely emotional and, and has cut off so much of the substance and significance that has filled the praise of saints for centuries. And so the idea behind Psalm 29 is it, it helps us understand what worship is. It helps us understand what, what God's glory is, the sum of all that God is. It helps us hear a demonstration of the glory of God uh, in God's voice wreaking havoc in the world in a, a theophanic kind of storm. And then it has a conclusion on this song that makes it very, very personal, And so it is a song all about, consumed with the glory of God, the glory of God. You've noticed when I I read it, I'm sure, how many times this song says the covenant name of God, 18 times at least, the word, the name Yahweh is featured in almost every single verse, multiple times, 11 verses, Yahweh is featured 18 times. And and the arrangement of this song with the concept of Yahweh's voice being predominant and just featured in the middle of this song sets it into really three clear uh, parts. This song has obvious seams in it, divisions in it. There's a fourfold use of Yahweh's name. If you look at verses one and two, give to Yahweh, give to Yahweh, give to Yahweh, bow and worship to Yahweh. And then it switches to speak about Yahweh's voice, starting in verse three, Yahweh's voice, Yahweh's voice in verse four, again in verse five, the voice of Yahweh in verse seven, and verse eight, and verse nine, conclusively, Yahweh's voice. And then at the end, we see again a grouping of Yahweh's name four times in verses 10 through 11. I'm just trying to show you that David wrote something very 
artistic, very poetic, very intentional. And so you have four uses of Yahweh's name in this first section, verses one and two. You have the theme of Yahweh's voice and the actions that his voice does, all the, the mayhem and, and uh, stormy thundering and destruction that comes as a result of Yahweh's thunderous voice speaking over his creation in verses three through nine. And at the end, it focuses again on, on Yahweh, not his voice anymore, but his residence in, in heaven. It starts in heaven, and then it moves from heaven to earth, and then reminds us where God is, and brings us back down to uh, this celestial ball here. So it's a, quite a song because it takes this journey starting in, in God's throne room surrounded by angels. And then as an apparent storm, or at least a poetic description of a storm, flies across the ancient world, starting in the waters of the Mediterranean and moving through the north and in Lebanon and wreaking havoc on a forest and causing deers to go into premature labor, and then suddenly coming out of that with this this climactic moment in verse 9 where the only thing you can say in response is glory, and then it shoots us back to a scene of God sitting on his throne as the entire earth is, is flooded in Genesis 6 through 11, and then the people of God are strengthened and blessed with peace. It's really a wild journey, isn't it? As you look down at Psalm 29, you can see there's a lot going on here, and appropriately so, it teaches us how to worship the glory of God, how to ascribe majesty and, and strength and honor to God, how to worship God, because every single one of us is a worshiper, all of us all of, of, of all the people in this world have things that they are devoted to, that they give honor to, sometimes concepts or ideas, sometimes movements or politics, sometimes the gain of, uh, of relationship or financial gain or uh, prominence, whatever it is that your heart longs for, this song is trying to reorient that longing and that worship and that significance to the only one who is worthy of all your attention and your affection. So if worship for you is, is lifeless, if it's dull, if it's dry, if, if you are lacking really what fills your mind when you think about God? You need a psalm like Psalm 29 to teach you about the glory of God. And it does so in these three, I think, very beautiful and logically coherent sections. And so let's talk about the glory of God in three parts. The glory of God, first off, in verses 1 and 2, is defined for us in God's throne room with the angels there. And then in the middle section of this song, verses three through nine, where God's voice is featured, we see the glory of God is demonstrated as he utters his voice and the impact of his voice is seen. And then in verses 10 through 11, uh, the glory of God is devoted and we'll see what God's glory is devoted to when we look at those verses. So let's walk through it, a simple song that I think will help you understand what it means to worship and what is, what, what exactly do we mean when we talk about the glory of God. So let's start by letting Psalm 29 define for us what is the glory of God. David's song begins in verse one. Give or ascribe to Yahweh O sons of the mighty, give to Yahweh glory and strength. Well, this song begins by helping us understand that the glory of God is being given and commanded in a place outside of our understanding, outside of our experience. Give or ascribe to Yahweh, the covenant name of God, the God of Israel, uh, O sons of the mighty, are addressed. Now, no matter how big your dad is, you are not a son of the mighty. 
That's a word, that, that's a phrase that literally points towards the, the sons of God. That's an Old Testament way of talking about angels. In Psalm 89, the, the same phrase is used. It says, the heavens will praise thy wonders, O Yahweh, thy faithfulness also in the assembly of the holy ones, for who in the skies is comparable to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty is like the Lord, a God greatly feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all those who are around him? O Yahweh of hosts, who is like the almighty Yahweh? That little section of Psalm 89, a psalm all about God's unchanging faithfulness, gives us that understanding of what these are. These sons of the mighty are the same ones as the assembly of the holy ones in heaven who wonder at who God is. It's the same ones who are the hosts that the Lord of hosts commands. And so who is being directed to praise in verse 1 is angels. Now, who is singing verse 1? David is, and you are with the psalm open in your hand. And I don't know if you've ever thought about that before or would ever consider such a thing as telling angels what to do. When's the last time you told an angel what to do? I don't know who you boss or bully, I don't know who you, you command. Maybe you're the manager at a smoothie store. I'm not sure. And you, 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 know, you crack the whip and tell the workers to clean the lavatories and the blenders, hopefully two different sinks for that. And you understand you know, your limited scope of authority here on earth. As a college student, you're starting to explore the true bounds of, of that authority as your parents are you know, in charge of you partly, and you're kind of, you know, independent and whatever. But as you think through your, your authority, I doubt any of you, maybe you grew up bossing your younger siblings, or, or maybe you just have alpha tendencies in your, your pack of friends, but I don't think any of you think of yourself as in charge of angels, as telling angels what to do. But this song is not unique. Believers all through the Bible in songs of praise often tell angels how they ought to sing. And that's incredible. And I think it's a good starting point to understand what the glory of God is. This phrase you've heard your whole life, the glory of God, glorify God, give glory to God. I think the best place for us to see it un changed and unaltered and, and not messed up in any way is in heaven's court. And so the psalmist sings and he commands us to sing to tell the angels, the sons of the mighty one, to give to Yahweh glory and strength. Angelic praise being commanded from human lips to angel wings in the presence of God. It's not the first time you've bossed angels, though. You just didn't notice before, probably. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Oh, praise him. Alleluia. Remember what you say next? Praise him above ye heavenly host. That's my American Idol edition. <laughs> you, yeah. It's, yeah. No, my, it's, it's, like a, it's like an angel from Albuquerque. <laughs> Did you hear what you just sang or I tried to sing? Praise ye above ye heavenly host. You've sang that a hundred times. And when you sang it, you commanded the angels to praise God, the one from whom all blessings flow, to praise him, not just all creatures here below, but praise him above, ye heavenly hosts. You see, God is so worthy of praise, of adoration, of being given all honor and being ascribed all worthiness that 
it makes sense that his creatures made in his image and likeness would enjoin those creatures above that are in his presence to give God glory and strength, to sing to God and to praise God and to rightly celebrate God's glory. And so David's hymn begins with celebrating the glory of God. And he does so by using that one word that captures all that God is, which is God's glory. You see, glory is a word that we need to have in our vocabulary when we talk about God. Because glory is a word that serves as this word to capture all the words that rightly describe who God is and how God is. And so the reason we summon the angels is because of the unlimited perfections of God, all the the ways that God is, is beautiful and righteous and just and holy and wrathful and loving and all that God is. We gather all those things up and not only those things, but all who could possibly ascribe or give recognition to those things are invited to join all creatures, all humans, all angels. In other places in the Psalms, the trees are invited. So anything that God made, because everything that God is, is so worthy of having this many tongues and eyes and hands all speak to the magnificent and excellence of God. Glory is a word that serves to hold all the words and concepts that are in God to describe all that God weighs. I weigh 200. <coughs> Excuse me, it's the long haul. Uh, I weigh 200 pounds. And... Every, 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 put it on a scale, that's about where I'm at. I weigh under 300 pounds. And once I actually got to 297. Remember that, Marilee? Those were good days for us. And she said, this far and no further, thy shall go. She commanded the angelic host. And... And that's, that's the, you know, when you get on a scale, it's, it's all you are is right there on the scale. It's a number that may haunt you or it may inspire you to greatness. But that summary of all your parts on the scale is your mass, your weight. And it fluxes over time. Trust me, skinny college students, you'll be sorry for mocking me. But it moves. God has weight as well. But it's not mere pounds or kilograms that you measure the spirit of God in. Instead, God's weight, that's what the word glory literally means in Hebrew, kabod, is, is weight. But, but it's not just a mere, you know, how much are these bananas or, you know, did you do CrossFit and lose 15? It's not that kind of weight doesn't summarize all that is this concept of weight or glory that we're supposed to give or ascribe to God. When kabod was used of people in the Old Testament, it indicated a person's standing in the community, their significance. When it's used of God, it speaks of God's standing at the center of life. It shows his supreme power, his, his status, his, his majesty and kingship. God's glory, God's weight, God's summary of all that God is in infinite perfection is awesome and without compare. And so before we can even see God's glory demonstrated in what God can do, now we're just looking at who God is, and David says, angels, you take it, you see it, sing about it, and do two things, 
as the, the human chorus joins the angelic chorus. Ascribe or give three times, verse 1, twice, verse 2, ascribe to Yahweh, ascribe to Yahweh glory and strength, ascribe to Yahweh the glory due to his name. It's, it's owed to him. It's, it's a right kind of assessment of, of God's glorious perfection of all that God is. And not only to ascribe, but verse two, to bow in worship. That's redundant because in Hebrew, it's the ATD translation and I'm, I'm regretting it right now because it just should say worship Yahweh. Because to bow in worship is to worship in worship. It's to bow and bow. Bow and bow. The, the word worship means bow. That's what it means. It means to get down low, like physically. And, and now that isn't the only way to worship. In the Bible, people worship with their hands up. Sorry, fundies. People worship leaning on their staff. People worship in all manner of position because the, the physical posture of worship is really just conveyed to be an expression of adoration and humility. That's what's happening in verse two. All are told to ascribe to Yahweh what's due to him and to bow down before him because of his majesty. And then his glory is most prominently featured, but what his glory consists of in verse one is power and majesty because these are sons of the mighty one and it speaks of his strength. And so the celebration starts with the power of God, his omnipotence, his ability to do more than anyone else can do. I talked about your authority a second ago. Let's talk about your power. Do you even lift, bro? Do you? Because you have some power, some amount of power in you. Your ability to do whatever it is you're trying to do. That's, that's part of, of how God made you. It's every single person has a certain amount of power, not just talking about authority like before, but this is your ability. How far can you run? How much can you lift? Uh, what could you set your mind to accomplish? This is your power. You see, the reason God is eternally happy and blessed is because there is no limit to what God can do. That's one way that God is so unlike us. And so you can imagine how powerful you could be, how much ability you could have to do whatever it is you could set your mind to do, but it falls far short of God's ability to do whatever he wants to do, and that's why he is eternally blessed and happy because God's ability to do matches God's desire to do. In other words, there is nothing that God cannot do. That's behind that little word, omnipotence. There is no wall or limit that stops God from doing whatever it is that God wants to do. And so the angels and the, the congregation sings about God's glory and strength and celebrates the majesty, the kingship of his holiness. Because this glorious God would not be glorious if that immeasurable power, God's ability to do whatever he wants to do, was not matched by God's moral perfection and beauty, which is his holiness. See, it's not that God is constrained, it's that God is holy and not evil. He's righteous and not unrighteous. The gods of human imagination. Canaanite gods. A lot of students of the Psalms think this is a, a ripoff. Ripoff's too strong of a word. A, a play on, or maybe you could even you could be more positive, a mockery of a Canaanite hymn to a god like Baal, which we call Baal in Sunday school. And I don't know that this is, this is a, a copy of that. 
I don't think that makes a lot of sense to me because the people of God don't need any inspiration from lesser gods to ascribe worth and majesty to their, jo- their God. But they did live in a world like ours that demanded apologetics, a defense for what they believed. And the other gods that the pagan nations worshipped were far limited in their scope, ability, geography. I mean, Baal himself, Baal, was a god of thunder, like your boy Thor. He, he was a, a storm god. That's the kind of god he was. And so he was associated with fertility because storms brought rain, which watered the earth and gave increase to the crops. And so the Canaanites would think of the hills surrounding them as the place where their God dwelled and they would worship him in those kind of places because that's where the storms would roll in from and they would give all the credit for rain or the lack of rain in a drought. They would say that that was all because of Baal. I mean, Canaanite religion does need to be answered as does anything that threatens to take any glory from God. And so this opening volley from earth to heaven, commanding angels to praise, with this one word that captures all of the unlimited perfections of God is an apology against Canaanite religion and against all other false religion, all other lowercase God, because we must give and ascribe and worship and bow down the, the weight, the full majesty of God, because his standing in the community is at the highest possible level, because the universe belongs to him. He's awesome and without compare, and the glory of God is all that proceeds from God. And so I like the way Psalm 29 defines the glory of God being the summary of God, what's due to God, what is owed to God when it comes to ascribing him or giving him praise and to worshiping him for all that he is. Theologians try, but I don't know that they can improve much on that definition. And they do a good job. Listen to Jim Hamilton. The glory of God is the weight of the majestic goodness of who God is and the resulting name or reputation that he gains from revealing himself as creator, sustainer, judge, and redeemer, perfect in justice and mercy, loving kindness and truth. God's glory elicits praise. That's an excellent theological definition of God's glory. Is it good enough? There's no way for us to define it. Because it's, it's simply all that there is in God. That's God's glory. And you could never exhaust it. You could never define it. You could never limit it. It is what should elicit our praise. And when God made this world, he made it as a cosmic temple to give him glory. And when we look around our our tiny corners of it that we can see with our eyes, whether you're fascinated by Yosemite or by black holes in the sky or mountains in Nepal or vast deserts in the Sahara or or whatever it is that that captures your imagination in the world that God made in in a big level or in a microscopic level in, in the level of cells and DNA, all of that was created by God as a theater for his glory. We read, Pastor MacArthur read Psalm 19 this morning. The heavens declare the glory of God and that's exactly what God did when he made this world as a temple for his eternal praise that he would be known and he would be served and he would be praised and he would be worshipped and so he made a world that would do that but beyond the physical parts of this world like trees and and cells and shamus and bengal tigers and caterpillars and black holes and stuff 
He made people in his image and likeness who are enough like him and not like him that we can resonate and express and know and serve and praise and worship this God. That's what Eden was for. That garden was the sanctuary of this temple that was the whole universe and God put people there that he made from himself from the dust of creation and the breath of Yahweh came man and out of man came his perfect complement woman and together they were to inhabit and subdue and explore and extol and create and serve and know and praise and worship uh, forever and ever as they radiate the image of God. They were to learn so much that we've learned about the complexity of the human eye. They were to marvel at the wonders of the human brain. They were to use their imaginations and their skills to create things in this world and to cultivate language and relationships and All of those things were intended to be used to worship God, their creator, and then they fell in sin. And this broken world became a fractured mirror that no longer displayed the glory of God perfectly in the eyes of creatures who were now blinded and twisted by sin. But even in that fall, from grace into sin. Perfectly glorious God in all his infinite beauty knew exactly what he was doing because upon the fall of man and the plunge of the human race into sin, now God could display to these creatures in his likeness something they could not have seen apart from this great fall, which is his mercy and grace and salvation and justice. And so all that goes in that big bowl that we call glory. And so what's it look like in this world? Well, to the Israelites, it looked like thunder and lightning most often. Psalm 18, the book of Job repeatedly, Psalm 18, verse 13 says, the Lord also thundered in the heavens and the most high uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. When the Israelites saw lightning, they didn't think like the Canaanites thought. They thought Yahweh's power is on display. And in David's poem, he composes a song that really pictures a meteorological storm, some kind of storm. It's, it's both poetically imaginative in the way he expresses this storm and meteorologically accurate. It starts with the voice of Yahweh, always associated, like in Psalm eighteen thirteen, with thunder, The voice of Yahweh in a theophany, an appearance of God coming so often like in Ezekiel alongside of a storm. And so having called the angels to define the glory of God, now in verses three through nine, David demonstrates and displays the glory of God. And it starts with the voice of God over the waters, God's Voice. It's the Hebrew word, simple little word for sound or, or voice or noise. It's a common phrase in the Old Testament, God's voice. It's the, it's the means of his revelation of himself. God speaks, God makes a sound, God shows up, and his thunderous voice comes over the waters. Likely, this is David looking at an awesome storm rolling in and being inspired by God's movement in his creation as this storm comes over the land. And he pictures it. This part requires some extra explanation for Californians because we don't have what they call in other places in the world, weather. So it just gets hotter here. 
and then it backs off for a minute and then it gets hotter again and backs off for a minute and gets, would you feel like it was hot today? Did you feel like it's hot today? You got nothing yet. Wait till a month from now. It's going to scorch us. That's the only weather we have. In other places, they watch something on television called the Weather Channel. People in California don't watch the Weather Channel because it would just be because it's always the same, just scorching. In other places, they hunker down. They buy plywood. They screw it to their windows because they've got to watch the weather channel so that they know like when the hurricane is going to come with 176 mile an hour winds and storms as the water temperature rises in the sea and Irma or whatever they name her this time is swinging around in that big murky cloud thing that's like skill saw going to just on Florida and Houston. Or my friend in Oklahoma who pastors a church, he, he has to, I don't think they even have television in Oklahoma, so he listens to an old radio, <laughs> cranks it, listens to the radio. And it says when the hurricane is, not the hurricane, tornado, uh, the tornado, the tornado is going to come through, right? In Tornado Alley, up the middle of our country, this thing comes cruising through and it eats trailer parks for breakfast. And so we don't think about weather like other people do because the weather here only melts stuff, nothing more. In Israel, they have storms, impressive storms that come from the Mediterranean in the north. And though their their climate is often temperate, they have impressive storms that, that come in from the waters of the north and And David says, the glory of God thunders, and Yahweh is over many waters. You see, he sees God in this storm, and he describes it in verse 4 as as Yahweh's voice in power and in majesty, the same two concepts that he introduced to us in verses 1 and 2. But as this storm of the the demonstrating, just a, a little tiny sliver of the power of God moves further south, it then starts to snap trees in half. It breaks, verse five, the cedars. Yahweh has broken the cedars of Lebanon. And if you've read the Bible very much, you've seen that phrase over and over again, the cedars of Lebanon. Solomon went to get some cedars from Lebanon to to build the temple. It's like the fanciest wood in the ancient world because it's basically like the only wood in the ancient world. There was a massive forest in Lebanon. They call it now uh, the God's Forest, God's Forest, God's Trees. I can't remember. It's a UNESCO World Heritage Site, and it's like this big because... There's a lot of people in the sandy desert of the Middle East, and they've been taking trees from there for, I don't know, four or 5,000 years, and so they're kind of out of trees there now, and so it doesn't look like it used to look, but there is this UNESCO heritage site, the, the trees of Lebanon, where these massive old world cedars grow. Some of them are uh, older. They're, they're from the time of Jesus. They're ancient trees. They would remind you of similar to those trees when you go up north in California, redwoods and sequoias. And so in David's day, there was still a big forest there that they could get lumber from in Lebanon. It was a place where they had mountains and evergreens and solid cedar wood and lots of snow on the ground in the winter, that kind of a massive old growth forest. And The storm moves down from the Mediterranean and into the area of Lebanon and it breaks these trees, something that took the machinations and ability of man to to cut these trees down and to haul them on ships to build temples and and buildings. And and now in just a moment, these trees are, are devastated by this storm that is equated with the voice of God. He snaps them in half like they're nothing. And these are big, huge, old growth trees. 
The people, the land, I'm sorry, the land of Lebanon, verse six, leaps like a calf. And Sirion, that's a kind of an ancient name for Mount Hermon, which is the very highest point in Israel. It's the biggest mountain in the northern part of Israel. The, the, the elevation there is, is, is much higher than down in Jerusalem. And so Sirion is like a young wild ox. This is just poetic language describing trees snapping in a storm, the ground waking and moving with this great wind coming through. Perhaps it's a little imagery of earthquakes, but all of it, I know it's making those of you who are concerned about climate change very, very nervous because trees are breaking, and I'm sorry you can hug the ones that are outside after, but God is doing this. He, this isn't global warming. This is God snapping trees and shaking the earth and displaying his power and his majesty. Verse seven, the voice of Yahweh is, and this part is impossible to translate. I had my uh, Hebrew professor friend on the phone last night and I, I made no progress. The voice of Yahweh is hewing flames of fire. Some translations give up and just go, it's lightning. But it says like digging flames of fire. What is that? I don't know, but do not get in its way. It's digging fire. And so God's voice moves through. And maybe it is lightning, and it's just a poetic description of, of lightning, you know, leaving these craters in the ground where they burn a tree down to the root. Uh, the voice of Yahweh, verse 8, and this one's really interesting, makes the wilderness that most Bibles say shake. The word is writhe twist, travail. It's, word, it's the word used for childbirth in the Old Testament. I mean, this is traumatic. This is convulsing, writhing and shaking. The desert or the wilderness, the uninhabited places, the, the barren places are, are shaking like a woman in labor as they twist and convulse and groan and travail and shudder. And the wilderness of Kadesh, same thing, it writhes. And this causes all kinds of action throughout the world as this storm runs through and shows us the power of God on display. Yahweh's voice makes the deer give birth. These animals that inhabit these forests are, are launched into premature labor. This happens in the book of Job when the thunder strikes as well and has stripped the forests bare. I mean, it's a big storm. And so there is some, some apologetics here against storm gods. Baal is not in charge of storms. He is not the one who, who brings water to the land or, or devastates a forest or raises up the crop with the right amount of light and rain. Only God does that. And so this song did answer the, those who thought Baal was the storm god. It gave all the credit to, to Yahweh. And I, I, think we should, I think we should look at creation more often than we do and ascribe more praise to God than we do. I was thinking that as he read Psalm 19 this morning. We need to look at more places that are inspiring to us in God's world and take them in with our eyes and give that glory and praise to God. And when it rains here once a year in January, we need to go outside and let it hit us on our bald heads because to feel that and see that and to connect that with the voice of God is how saints from the, the Hebrew Bible to today have always thought about the world in which we live. It's a, a theater to display God's glory. Oh, oh worship the king, oh, oh, glorious above. I'm not gonna try to sing this one because it's harder. The chariots of wrath, the deep thunder clouds Form, and dark is his path and the wings of the storm. So whether it's mountains or meteorology, we need to take it all in and see it as it really is, the power and glory of God on display, the very voice of God.
How do we respond? Well, it's not up to us. The culmination of this song responds in the only possible way. Verse nine says, and in his temple, and I don't know if this is a reference to the earthly temple, like the one that Solomon would build. I don't think it is, or, or it's, well, it's not that one because David wrote this, but is it a, a reference to David's temple, the, the tabernacle, the, the earthly temple, like Mount Zion, Jerusalem. God's always had a temple from Eden on, but is that what it's talking about? I don't think so. I think we went back up, back up to the, to the sons of the mighty, or maybe it's just the temple, like the, those who worship God, all his people kind of in God's place, which in this case is the earth itself. Whether it's heaven's court or an earthly temple, there's only one word that can depict all of the devastation of this storm that has rolled through and decimated the creation that God sustains. And it's that the temple and everything, which I think includes the deer and the forests and the cedars of Lebanon and the, the land like a calf jumping and the power and majesty and the, the foaming and, and roaring waters of the sea. I think all of it, along with David, along with the worshipers, along with the angels, just says glory, glory. And we need to do that when we see the power of God on display, whether it's in a lightning storm or the birth of a baby or the incredible ingenuity of human relationships that God made, whatever it is in this world that God created, we ought to respond accordingly and say, glory. Glory be to God, all that God is and all the glorious beauty of God, the perfection of God can not be articulated by our weak tongues. Instead, we can just say glory. Majestic goodness, glory. Sustaining God, glory. Creator God, glory. The judge of all the earth, glory. Redeemer of, of sinners, glory. Perfect justice, glory. Mercy, glory. Loving kindness, glory. Truth. And when his power is in display in his creation or in salvation, which we'll see in a moment, the only appropriate response is glory. And so God's glory is defined in verses one to two. It's demonstrated in verses three through nine. And it's devoted in verses 10 and 11. What is God's glory devoted to? Well, God's glory is ultimately devoted to the only one who is worthy of this glory, and that's God himself. You see, God is a God who is consumed with his own glory. He would not be God and all-glorious if he was not. If God was consumed with us, that means that the object that God finds most glorious would not be himself and he is the most glorious one. And so God sees his own glory as being the ultimate end of all things. And so when we're called to worship him, we participate in extolling and giving and ascribing glory to where it's due. And so God's glory is devoted first and foremost to himself. And I think it shows this in verse 10 after this absolutely devastating storm moves through the Levant and all of creation simultaneously says glory, we're reminded that this isn't the first time God has judged. Verse 10, it was Yahweh who sat enthroned at the flood. It's a perfect tense. For some reason, a lot of Bibles are saying uh, sitting. It's, I think it's past tense. Yahweh sat enthroned at the flood. There's no question that this is not the same flood we just watched unfold in the middle of this song. Because this is a word that's only used here and in Genesis 6 through 11. It's the Noah flood word. It's that flood. It's the cataclysmic global flood. And we're reminded by the psalmist that 
God's voice was in the storm that he just observed that showed what a glorious and powerful and majestic God he is. But this isn't the first time God has rendered judgment on creation. That first time was when God sat enthroned the flood. And you need to picture it, a throne in heaven, a place where God rules from and controls all things. And he sat on that throne and he opened up the earth to gush out the water from the earth and to destroy it all except Noah and his little boat and his family. God was in it. That was the glorious power of God in judgment. And his kingship was never questioned. In college, I make you read the Epic of Gilgamesh, right? And it's like a gotcha thing. Look, the epic of Gilgamesh, gotcha. Because they say this thing's older than the Hebrew Bible. And you know what it's got in it? Floods. All kind of flood stories in the ancient world. You think that's just a Hebrew thing? Nah. People have been doing flood stories a long time. Gotcha. You should throw your Bible in the trash. I mean, they don't say it that unsophisticated, but that's the agenda. You should totally read the Epic of Gilgamesh. When the earth floods and Gilgi gets his boat, those gods have a full-blown panic attack. There is a god in the fetal position, whimpering, it says, like a dog. They couldn't handle the flood. It scared them. Ishtar, it's a big time God from the epic of Gilgamesh, says, Ishtar cried out like a woman in travail. And here you have Yahweh. He's not having a baby, he's on throne control. And he opens up the floodgates and he judges the world. And he promises he'll never do it again with water, but someday with fire. God's glory is devoted to God because anything that threatens, usurps, undermines, bends or twists God's glorious way will meet the judgment of God unless it meets the other thing that God is devoted to, which is his people. You see, his people are beneficiaries of his devotion to himself and his name because they bear his name. And so those who oppose him will receive the judgment of God as he brings about the protection and the vindication of his glory, but his people are the ones who will be covered by the blessing of God, the protection of God, the salvation of God. And so God's glorious power is on display at the end of this song in the judgment at the flood and in this stormy judgment the world just saw and in every dark storm that will ever be on the the horizon of life in this fallen world, God's hand of judgment is there unless you are God's people. If you belong to God, if your devotion is to the glory of God, if you love God, if you're called according to his purpose, verse 11 is for you and for me, undeserving sinners who've been rescued by God and forgiven by God because we have now seen and loved and extolled and given uh, and ascribed glory to God, to his strength and to his majesty, who have bowed in humble submission and worship to God, we are depicted in verse 11, not under the flood of God's wrath in verse 12, but under the rescue of God's salvation. Yahweh, verse 11, gives strength to his people. Strength to his people. Strength is what he has to give because he is omnipotent, remember? He has majesty and strength, verse 1. And so strength he gives to his people so that he will bear them up through the storm. 
But it's not just strength to endure, to sustain us. Yahweh blesses his people with peace. What do we need after a flood? What do we need after a cataclysmic storm? What do we need when the voice of Yahweh terrifies us with its power? There's one thing we need, and it's shalom. And that's more than just a way of saying hi in Tel Aviv. Shalom is peace. It's a devoted sort of calmness. It's a setting of everything right. Peace is what God brings to those who are under his protective hands. His reigning and sustaining power on display in judgment and salvation. This psalm begins with glory in heaven and it ends with peace on earth. And the disciples would get a taste of it like we saw in Mark chapter four when Jesus was in his boat, in their boat, and they saw heaven and earth come together for a moment and storms were stilled because God spoke with his voice and there was peace. And dear friend, a day is coming that if you know the Lord Jesus Christ savingly, if you trust him by faith, if you repent of your sin and ascribe glory and worth and homage to him, if you worship him, that you will be under his protective care, which was accomplished for you on the cross of Jesus on that hill where heaven kissed earth at God's temple and we saw that full forgiveness could be achieved. And all those who belong to God will be sustained and protected and given peace when heaven meets earth again. And there'll never be another storm because heaven and earth will come together. Revelation 21 describes this time and God will be on his throne, and you will be there, and all these little attempts that we've made to give glory to God will find their fullest fruition as we worship him for all eternity. May God have all the glory. Amen.